This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's never just, you know, hey, I, I need to tell you guys that I've changed my views on things. I just want to be honest of where I am right now. And, and this is what you need to know about my new faith. It's formed in terms of sort of a reverse testimony. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. How can Christians live faithful to the Bible, faithful to God, faithfully different in a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to what we believe? We've got a great guest for you today, Natasha Crane. She's just written a book called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture, and we're going to bring her on in just a moment. But man, I want to ask you, take this moment, subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video because we have some incredible incredible conversations coming up. One of which I want to tell you about is coming up on the evening of March 8th. We're going to be doing a live stream with my guest from today, Natasha Crane, myself, and our friends from the Center for Biblical Unity, Monique Dusan and Krista Bontrager. We're going to be talking about the new Orange Curriculum and Conference. So if you're unfamiliar, Orange is a ministry that produces curriculum that many churches across the country use for their children's programming. And in a recent promotion for their conference, uh, we saw some concerning things in there. So we're going to be asking the question, is the new Orange Curriculum teaching our kids progressive Christianity? Is the statement, Jesus came to prove the worth of humans, which is in the promotional materials, is that a biblical statement? Is that even a Christian statement? What are we teaching our kids? So we are going to be talking about that on the evening of March 8th. Definitely subscribe. Don't miss that. I also want to let you know that right after Natasha and I record this episode for my podcast, I want to direct you over to the Natasha Crane podcast. You are not going to want to miss out on all the things she is talking about, equipping Christians to live faithfully different. Go subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast. We are going to be analyzing some broader ideas that we're seeing in progressive Christianity and in culture through the lens of a book that we just read together. We're going to be analyzing some ideas in the book by John Pavlovitz called If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. So definitely go over, subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast. But without any further ado, Natasha, it's so great to have you on. I'm curious to ask you, I mean, I know the answer to this because I was watching it unfold, but talk about the impetus behind this book. What what was it? What event happened that caused you to think, I need to write this book faithfully different? Yeah. So back during the unrest, all the social unrest of 2020, I had uh, been watching everything that was going on in terms of the, the riots and the protests and everything. And I was seeing that so many Christians seemed to be absorbing some very secular ideas of social justice. And prior to that time, I had really only been focused on writing about apologetics for parents specifically. And so when I was doing that, I, I never wanted to get away from that too much. But as I was seeing how people were getting sucked into these other ideas, I said, you know what, I'm going to start writing about this as well. And so I wrote a blog post about five ways that Christians are getting pulled into a secular worldview in this cultural moment. And it went viral. It kind of exploded all over the internet. It was liked and shared over 277,000 times. And I was getting emails for weeks from people who were saying, thank you for bringing clarity to this. I knew that something wasn't quite right, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Mm. And uh, so I thought, you know, I should write some more about this. And so I started writing more of these posts about cultural engagement and really trying to clarify the differences between a biblical and a secular worldview. And they just kept getting out there thousands and thousands of shares. And I thought, you know what, more needs to be written about this. And so that was really what drove me to write Faithfully Different is to help Christians 
think biblically, believe biblically, and live biblically in this secular culture and just draw those lines more clearly. And we're going to talk about what all those words mean. What do we mean when we're saying secular, secularism, religion? But I want to start by talking about some data that you share in your book. You note that according to Barna Research, 65% of Americans identify themselves as Christians, yet you call Christians a, quote, worldview minority. So can you explain that a little bit? How, how can Christians be a worldview minority when so many people in our country are saying, yeah, I'm a Christian? Yeah, great question. So it's actually the Pew Forum. They're an organization that's really well known for doing all this kind of research on religious trends in America. And so they have these studies called the Religious Landscape Studies, where they track how people identify themselves as Christians. And so in the most recent study that they've done, I believe in 2019, what they found is that when you ask people, how do you identify and you give them these options, atheist, agnostic, a Jewish, Mormon, Christian, 65% of Americans do identify themselves as a Christian. But we have to remember that that's really how people self-identify and it can mean all kinds of things. You can have somebody who maybe went to church when they were a kid and don't really have any other thoughts about their faith as an adult, but it's kind of the closest thing to which they would identify. And so they say, I'm a Christian. And you can have people who claim to be a Jesus follower in some way, whatever that might mean to them, uh, but not really hold to any kind of beliefs that you would be thinking of when you hear the word Christian. And so what we really need to better understand is what do people actually believe? What is their worldview? Because that's going to be more determinant of their function in society and what we notice in our culture around us. And so for that, we can turn to the research from the American Worldview Inventory, which is conducted out of Arizona Christian University. They have a cultural research center there instructed by Dr. George Barna. And what they found using a whole battery of questions, really dozens of questions, looking at what people believe and how they, they live out their faith, they found that 6% of people in America have a biblical worldview. And of course, depending on the particular survey and the questions, that's going to vary a little bit. But the point is, is that it's going to be almost certainly something less than 10%. And so when we think about that gap between 65% of Americans who say, yes, I'm a Christian, and 6% who actually have what we would consider to be some kind of functioning biblical worldview where people are holding to the core truths taught in the Bible and seeking to live accordingly, that's just a huge difference. And it explains so much about what we see in culture, right? Because we don't look around usually and think, yeah, most of our culture is Christian. And there's a good reason for that because very few people actually have a biblical worldview. Um, and, and one side note that I think is really interesting too is this is also a problem within the church. Mm -hmm. So same researchers have found that only about 21% of Christians in evangelical Protestant churches have a biblical worldview. So we're a minority. If you seek to have a biblical worldview, we're a minority, not just in our culture, but even in the church. Yeah. So many implications for that. Yeah. And you you quote the words of Jesus from John 15. I'm going to read those and then uh, ask you to comment. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me uh, hates my father also. If I had not uh, done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And uh, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And so it's obvious from, uh, this is what you wrote, it's obvious from Jesus' own words that we should never expect to live in a culture where it's standard for people to have a biblical worldview. This is why Christians should probably not be all that surprised by this. So the question we need to answer isn't, how do we create a culture where it's normal to be a Christian, but you say, it's better to ask the question, how can we best be faithful to our calling in a world where it will never be normal to be a Christian, in a culture where it's becoming less and less so? So I wonder if you can expound on that a little bit. Do you think Christians might be asking the wrong questions when it comes to faith and culture? 
Yeah, I do. I, I think that a lot of times we feel so shocked by what's going on. We look around, we say, I can't believe it. It's so, you know, it's so crazy out there. But Jesus, in you, you know, you just read his own words, like he told us that this is what we should expect. This, this is the expectation. Maybe we've been a little bit spoiled in that it hasn't always been so obvious to us that culture did not believe in the same way, but it's becoming more and more so, and we shouldn't be shocked by that. I think the reason why it's becoming more obvious to us now, though, is that really people have been discarding the doctrinal tenets of Christianity for a long time. This is not new. I mean, you can read books of, of Christian theologians for many decades, for centuries actually in America, and you can see that this has not always been the case, that everyone has held to a historic Christian faith in America. But what you have seen is that people generally did hold to values that were consistent with a biblical worldview in terms of what was valued in our culture. So valuing family and valuing marriage and, and the importance of these things, for example. So what you've seen over time is that the doctrinal tenets have gotten discarded more and more, but we didn't necessarily realize it because culture was still holding on to a lot of the values that we shared in common. But it's really been the last few years where it becomes so much more obvious that culture is not Christian. It's not Christian just because culture has had some values in common with what the Bible would teach. And so now you see that people are not just discarding doctrinal tenets, they're discarding the values that were consistent with a biblical worldview. And now is the time when people are noticing. Now they say, oh, wait, we don't have the same values anymore. Well, Christianity is not synonymous with values. These things are different. It's just that getting rid of the values and culture has really led us to this point where we're saying, oh, okay, I see. Yeah, I guess culture wasn't Christian all this time. So even though it's more obvious now to us for those reasons, I, I really want people to understand that it's not that Christianity just suddenly disappeared in the last five years and that people are throwing it away suddenly. This has been a very long process mm. over time. We just see it a lot more now. So mm. it, it's something we should expect. It's something that we're seeing. And now we need to ask that question of how do we best live up to our calling, what God wants from us in a culture where people aren't overwhelmingly Christian, where we're the worldview minority and understand what that means for us. And when you're talking about a worldview minority, uh, one thing I see on Twitter a lot or on social media among the deconstruction world and progressive Christian world is that, oh, you know, these conservative Christians or evangelical Christians, whatever word they're going to use, they've just got this persecution complex, right? They just think they're persecuted for everything because, you know, somebody doesn't like what they say on Facebook or something. So maybe you can clarify that a little bit, too. When you're talking about a worldview minority, uh, does that mean we're being actively persecuted or, you know, what level of alarm are you sounding here? Well, it's a it's just a statement of fact. It's it's a right. description of reality. So it, you're right. I think that a lot of people look at this and it, maybe a skeptic would look at my book and that first chapter, welcome to your place in a worldview minority. And they're going, oh, please, you know, the persecution complex, here we go again. But it's just a description of the data. You know, like we talked about, yes, 65% of people identify as Christians, but only 6% are actually having some kind of biblical worldview. So when we say that we're a worldview minority, we're not saying that people who identify as Christians are in the minority. They're not. That's 65% of America. But as sort of this in-house discussion amongst people who do seek to have a biblical worldview, it is a statement of fact that a tiny percentage of America shares that. And so I think that's the first thing, just to understand the data. But we have to also know that non-believers are not necessarily going to understand how we're kind of slicing and dicing that data. So they're mm -hmm. just saying, well, anyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. And so, of course, they're going to look at it and say, oh, well, you know, these, these people here, they think that they have the only Christianity. So there's going to be a lot of that kind of misunderstanding. But even in saying, okay, 6% have a biblical worldview, we're not implying in that that we're being persecuted actively in the ways that we see around the world. I mean, there is some serious active persecution in places like Nigeria that's going on where we need to 
pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are facing that kind of persecution. Right now, that is not what we're facing in America. Yes, we are facing a lot of hostility, and it's important to understand where that comes from, how to respond, all of those things I talk about in the book. But just saying we're a worldview minority does not imply, oh, poor us, we're the victims here, and, and something needs to change with that. No, it's just saying this is where we are. Let's talk about how to respond. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad we clarify that because I'm always kind of surprised when I see that. Um, you know, if you if you point out that culture is becoming a little bit hostile to uh, what we would consider to be historically Christian beliefs, like bare bones beliefs. We're not talking about secondary and third tier issues here. Um, but I'm always kind of surprised by that because when you look at what's going on in the rest of the world, we're saying, no, we want to continue to be a beacon of light to the rest of the world and be able to be in a position to help Christians who are being actively persecuted. And, uh, you know, as many of uh, many Bible believing Christians are doing. So I want to define terms uh, just so that we are very clear about what we're talking about here. And this might seem like a kind of silly and simple question, but it's one of those words where you ask people, what does it mean? And they might go, well, what does that exactly mean? What, what does the word religious mean? And then we're going to talk about secular after that. Yeah. And if you ask a lot of different people what that, that word means, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And so, uh, you know, to, to some degree, you have to settle down on one definition. And so how I define religious in the book and talk about this is that when we traditionally talk about someone who has a religious worldview, we're saying that they defer to the authority of a given religion or a god in their own life. And so conversely, irreligious tends to mean that a person does, it's not necessarily saying that they don't believe in God or some kind of higher power, but rather it's saying that rather than deferring to the authority of a particular religion as revealed theoretically by this God, that they defer to the authority of the self. And so that's ultimately the great divide that I talk about in the book is the millions of people who are, and I use the word secular, so in, in this sense, secular is irreligious in that way, but secular is really deferring to the authority of yourself rather than any given religion and its gods. So it, it, it's very important for people to understand it doesn't mean godless. Sometimes people hear the word secular and they think, oh, well, that means that a person doesn't believe in God. It means atheism. But that's not true. From a secular perspective, there can be some kind of higher power out there. There can be some kind of God. But it's not a God who has revealed himself authoritatively in some kind of revelation, some kind of scripture, like a Book of Mormon or the Quran or the Bible, whatever the case may be. And so ultimately, even if something's out there, so to speak, the authority of on what's true, what's right and wrong, what matters in life, what life is all about, all those big worldview questions come back to you as a self. And so I, I think the way I talk about it in the book is just to say that that's the tie that functionally binds the worldviews of millions of people, mm -hmm. the authority of the self rather than the authority of a given religion or God. And you might think, well, then if you have the authority of the self, you have millions of selves running around. And so you're going to have all kinds of different views on things. But what's so interesting is that all those authority of the selves come together in a lot of ways in culture today with some very specific ideas about how the world works. Yeah, and that, that was a fascinating part of your book, too, because a lot of people, I think, hear the word secular and they just think irreligious or just without religion, almost like it's this neutral sort of view of things. And, and you really persuasively argue that this is not neutral. Secularism is not a neutral thing. You can't just not have an authority for everybody has an authority for what they think is true. Everybody has in philosophy what would be called an epistemology. How do you come to know what you know? Everybody has a procedure for that, a method for that. They have certain assumptions about those things. And secularism, I, I agree 100%. In fact, my next book that I'm writing is called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, Exposing Popular Deceptions That Make Us uh, anxious, self-obsessed, and exhausted because what we see in the progressive Christian world, in the secular movement, uh, you know, I don't know if you'd call that a movement, but it, it really does shift authority from whether it be the Bible or whatever to the, to the self, this sort of ingrained conscience within everyone. And you pointed out that in what you just said, that that often tends to run together with certain ideas. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because that could be puzzling to people. Like, what happens when 
in a in a secular society, if one person's inner conscience says something different than someone else's, how does that parse out? And why does it seem like, but it also seems like everybody's sort of believing the same thing? <laughs> right. So it's <laughs> a lot in there. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. It is fascinating because you you and and we have to be a little bit clear here in saying that people, secular people, will have all kinds of different beliefs about right. you know whether there's energy in rocks and whether or not astrology is you know a, a viable. Uh, a viable thing that people do and whether or not there is a higher power. There are atheists who are secularists. And so there are going to be a lot of different beliefs. But what we're saying is that that there are, are certain things about the way that a secular person will look at the world that all converge together, given the nature of secularism being about the self. And so I identify four of these things, sort of tenets of a secular worldview in the book. The first one is that feelings are the ultimate guide. The second one is that happiness is the ultimate goal. The third one is that judging is the ultimate sin. And the final one is that God is the ultimate guess, meaning that we can have no confidence about what's true about this higher power of God who's out there other than that he hasn't revealed anything that's authoritative for us. And so these authority of the selves that are all out there, this is consistent with that. So when we say feelings are the ultimate guide, we see that play out in culture everywhere. Follow your heart. Only you are the expert on you. Of course, that makes sense within secularism, because if if your starting basis for your knowledge about reality is that you're the you're the expert, you're the authority, then of course feelings are going to be the ultimate guide because no one can tell you how you feel. You're the only one. Only you have access to that information. And so you kind of become in this cocoon mm. of untouchable authority because if someone comes along and tells you what to do, well, if that's not how I feel, then who are you to tell me that? Who are you to tell me how I feel? So that's my ultimate guide. And that is going to be the guide for people who look to themselves as their own authority. And then similarly with happiness being the ultimate goal, who are you to tell me what makes me happy? That's a very subjective kind of thing. So you can't touch me if my goal in life is happiness. My feelings are going to guide me to that goal, and you can't tell me about either of those things. And so both of those things being consistent with secularism, it leads to the next, that's judging is the ultimate sin. You can't come in and say anything about these things because you don't know. You have no way of knowing, and you're so arrogant to think that you you could tell me what's right for me because I'm the authority. Now, people might not necessarily realize that that's where they're coming from, but that's the underlying mentality of it that's consistent with a secular perspective. Mm. And so it's it's a very fascinating thing, really, to look at how all these things do converge. And that's why secularism is not neutral, because when you start from the authority of the self, there are certain things that are going to follow from that in terms of how you see the world and how you see reality. Mm. And it's so interesting to me when you have this authority, this very almost individualistic view of reality and truth, you know, what's true for me is true for me, what's true for you is true for you. And yet there seem to be united uh, agreement around certain causes and certain, uh, um, you know, if you look at cancel culture, like even though there's this individualistic element, it also seems like there's a rejection of individualism in the sense that you have to say the right things on social media. You you can't say something that's out of line with the herd. And in your book, you noted that in the early 80s, there, and I, I'm going to get, because I think there's a big tech uh, connection here. And I think you point this out too, that in the early 80s, there were 50 independent companies that owned the majority of media. By 2011, six conglomerates controlled 90% of the media, six conglomerates controlled 90% of the media. So what do you think the impact is on what, you know, what people believe and maybe give a couple of examples of that? Yeah. So when, when the, these conglomerates own the media, of course, we shouldn't expect that we're going to see a lot of diversity in views. I mean, I guess theoretically you could have six individual viewpoints of these companies, but that's not what we see happening. And so it, it's very interesting because in the chapter that I talk about that, and I'm talking about the nature of influence with secularism and why it becomes so influential. And I actually take this from my marketing background. I, I used to be a marketing executive and a marketing professor. And I talk about that 
the two big factors that go into influence for anything, we're not talking about worldviews in particular, but just the two factors that go into influencing someone to think or to act in a certain way are number one, how relevant a given message is that they feel it is to them at least. And number two, how prominent it is. So we can go back to the, the felt relevance if you want after this, but I'll address the prominence since that's what you brought up here. But prominence is how often you hear something. How much is this being put in front of you? It, you know, you think about things, products that maybe you're only marginally interested in, for example, and then you hear about them over and over. And after a while, you become convinced, I need that product. I, I need to have that iPhone. I need to have whatever it is that I'm seeing everywhere around me. And so prominence is so important in terms of our human nature in making us think that something is important. And when we have media that overwhelmingly is based in a secular worldview perspective, they have the power to put these messages in front of us in every way, shape, and form all the time. And so it becomes like this ubiquitous ad campaign really for secularism. And it affects us because it even you know whether you're a believer or not, you're going to be affected by the frequency of the messages that you see. And we hear about it all the time. You start thinking that these are the messages that I need to agree with. These are the messages that everyone else agrees with. These are the messages that are important to agree with. It, it just shapes how we see all of reality. So media is a hugely important part of this because of this prominence factor in influencing us, even as Christians, toward a secular perspective. I, I don't think that it can be really overstated at the, the role that media has. You mentioned felt re relevance. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So that other factor that goes into influence is how much you feel a given message is relevant to you personally. So I was like the example of a gym membership. I hate exercise, absolutely hate it. And if I hear an ad for come join our gym and say April, I feel that that message has no relevance to me because I am not interested in it. But there is a time of year, just like many other sheep out there. I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> There is another time of year where I do feel the relevance of that. And that is come January 1st every year. I start thinking about what are my New Year's goals and, you know, do I, I probably need to do something to get in shape even if I don't want to. And so I start thinking about it. And now when I hear an ad for a gym membership, I start thinking, yeah, okay, maybe I need to consider that. And so it, our, our felt relevance is really about how we feel when we hear something, if it resonates with us. And the big, big thing that I want people to understand when it comes to felt relevance and secularism is that the Bible itself tells us why secularism is so appealing to us as Christians even, because the Bible tells us that by our very human nature, we want to go our own way. Mm -hmm. We want to go away from God. We want the authority of the self. And even as believers, we struggle with this in the flesh, that we want to do our own thing. We don't always want to be under the authority of God, even when we seek to be in, in a more general sense. And so this is appealing. We feel the relevance because of our human nature of the message that says, you're your own boss. You're in control. You're the one to decide, hey, if that doesn't make you happy, then something must be wrong here. Hey, do you feel differently than what the Bible says? Well, maybe you need to go with your feelings because that's what really matters. And, and hey, don't judge other people. You're not, you know, in a position of authority over them. And of course, that's a mischaracterization because from a biblical worldview, we're saying God's the authority. We're just sharing the message. So that's not an accurate characterization, but that's how people see it. So we can, if we're not really clear on what the Bible teaches, we can very easily get swept into these secular ideas because that's just our nature. So we have those two big factors sort of going against us in terms of how much influence secularism has on us, that it has a message for us that we find to be very relevant as humans, and our culture is emphasizing and promoting it at every turn. So it's very prominent around us in our lives. It takes a lot to stand firm today. So we're going to have to get really clear as Christians and prepare for this culture. And get a very thick skin because we're yeah. living in a, a culture where it just, there seems to be this push to just be nice, right? Just mm -hmm. as long as, you know, as we're nice, that's good. And I see that really seeping into the church because in many cases, it seems like you'll hear somebody just saying something biblical that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. It shouldn't be controversial. And even in some Christian circles, people will react 
oh, that's so not like we need to be more gentle. We need to be more, uh, more nice. And I think that leaves some Christians kind of scratching their heads like, what's not nice about that? Or, you know, if there's um, maybe somebody saying something kind of strongly, but really I think it comes down to if you're saying something is objectively true, it's perceived as being aggressive. And that's something that is so hard to navigate because it's like we're, I, I don't know if you've seen the, there's a, I'll, I'll link to it in the podcast notes, but there's a discussion on YouTube between Peter Bogosian, who's an atheist, and James Lindsay, who I believe is also an atheist and a Christian pastor. And they're talking about critical theory, and this was even before the the sort of big shift in Christian culture after the George Floyd incident. And they were talking about the, the atheist James Lindsay said at one point, if I wanted to destroy the church as an atheist, he's a nice atheist, so he's not trying to destroy the church, but he said, if I wanted to, what I would do is try to make all the pastors woke. And it would destroy the church from the inside out. And in it's a fascinating video. I, I think you've seen it, but it, they talk about what they call reality tunnels and how the Christian and the atheist were saying we're in the same reality tunnel because we actually agree that truth exists, that the laws of logic exist. We can duke it out and say, I think this is true and I can say this is true. But where I think most culture has gone is what they were predicting is this other reality tunnel where it's not about what is objectively true anymore? In fact, as we know, relativism has become such a dominant view among so many in our culture. And I wonder if that's where this whole just be nice thing comes from, because it's just a completely different reality tunnel where any claim to objective truth, if I say, I actually think you're wrong about this and here's why, that's just viewed as like, why would you even like go there? That's so not nice. I wonder if you could comment on that, maybe give Christians some wisdom on how to navigate that reality tunnel we sort of find ourselves in now. Yeah, this is a huge one. I mean, I see this all the time. I've experienced it personally. You and I've had conversations offline about how we've seen this happen all, all the time. And I, I think what Christians have to understand is that you cannot determine whether or not you have shared truth in love and grace based on someone else's reaction anymore. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I say anymore. I don't know if it was ever the case. I do think it was maybe more the case in the past. But today specifically, it might be that you were a jerk in how you shared truth. Okay, so let's put that out there. You can absolutely share truth in all the wrong ways and and that's on you. We we don't want to be hated for for the truth that we, we share, but we want people to recognize if it's us, the mess the messenger itself that is the problem, right? But the problem is that people have a problem with the truth itself. And so that's where we get into these issues. And so if people are having a problem with objective truth, the mere suggestion that there is this truth outside of themselves, that there is this external authority, that the self is not the ultimate in the authority of life, then when you share that, people are going to be offended. And they might take it out on you as the messenger. They're going to shoot the messenger, so to speak. And I think you have to be ready for that and do your very best. None of us get this perfect. We don't always get this right, but to do your very best in sharing truth and love and grace, knowing that if someone hates you because of the truth that you share and someone is upset because of it, maybe they even feel hurt by it. We can't control how people receive truth. We can control how we deliver it. So when we do our very best, we pray about it. We ask for God's grace upon us that we would share this in, in a way that glorifies him. But at the end of the day, after we do that, it's up to the person to receive that. Mm -hmm. And it, that's so difficult because people will come back and they will tell you that you've hurt them. They will say that you've caused harm with the mm -hmm. truth that you've shared. And I think that's where so many Christians are finding it difficult because they say, I did my best to do this. I want to be loving, but like they say, I hurt them. They say that I've been harmful, but we have to remember that hurt and harm are ultimately going to be defined by God. Somebody might have the feelings that they have been hurt or harmed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have told them truth in a way that was wrong or that we've shared something that's wrong in the first place. It is it is really thorny, but I think we have to change our expectations and, and understand that we can't judge the truth that we've shared by how someone feels about it. And objective truth is directly connected to objective morality. 
I think we'll find people in culture who would say, yeah, some sense of objective truth exists. Two, two plus two equals four, although that's sort of <laughs> trying to be redefined right. in some circles. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, generally speaking, the average secular person is going to go to the bank and expect their money to be in their account. They're going to, uh, you know, maybe they, they'll even look to science and, and say, you know, science can lead the way or something like that. But when it comes to morality, it, it's like everybody in culture has put right and wrong should and shouldn't in the category of subjective, right? That's just what your heart tells you it is. And we can't be telling each other where we're wrong about that. And and so I think in a lot of these deconversion stories that we even see, that objective morality seems to be the baseline for deconversion. And in some way, it's like someone's internal morals are become at odds with the Bible. I see this a lot in the deconstruction movement where people, that that's a huge sticking point and a huge, maybe even in some cases, springboard or catalyst into a deconstruction or a deconversion is when their internal morals are at odds with what they perceive to be something the Bible is saying. And, uh, I think we see things like this even in culture. You write about the Shout Your Abortion movement. And then one just that I part of your book that I thought was so helpful was when you laid out the anatomy of deconversion. And so I wonder if you could talk to us about that. What is the anatomy of deconversion? And what role does objective morality, objective truth play in what you're calling the anatomy of deconversion? Yeah, so there's a, so I have a chapter that talks all about the narratives that we're seeing everywhere, the headlines that come out about celebrities who are deconverting or deconstructing, and you know sometimes they're not huge celebrities, sometimes it's just on their own social media platforms. But it's never just you know, hey, I, I need to tell you guys that I've changed my views on things. I just want to be honest of where I am right now, and and this is what you need to know about my new faith. It's formed in terms of sort of a reverse testimony. And so when you really start to read these over time, you see they're not just wanting to provide some kind of neutral information about their own change in worldview. They want to convince you that you should follow them in this. And so it's, it's really like they're witnessing to you that you need to reconsider everything because they are. And so the way that I lay it out in terms of these stages or the, these parts of the narratives that you'll see, uh, there are three parts really to this. Number one is that they'll talk about the catalyst and you know what was it that led them to this. But it's not, again, it's not just a neutral, let me tell you what started me on this path. It's, it's always in terms of, I've been just like you for so long. I've been a Christian. Mm -hmm. I've been there. I read the books. I, you know, I, I read all the apologetics. They, they say they did all these things. They were there. They're just like you. That's, that's the message. But then I realized I could no longer be a Christian. I could no longer believe that and fill in the blank, all kinds of things that really aren't what Christians believe a lot of times. Like I could no longer hate my LGBTQ friends. Right. Well, of course, we are not called to hate anyone. That's a mischaracterization. But that's part of how these stories are spun and crafted a lot of times. Not always. So I'm I'm painting with a broad brush here. It's not always the case, but you do see these trends amongst the stories. And so that catalyst that's identified, it might be intellectual doubts they had, emotional doubts, or uh, what I would call moral indignation, you know, saying that the church hurts people and Christians are hurtful and I can't hate my LGBTQ friends, those kinds of subjects. And so that's the catalyst part of it. So that already kind of warms people up, so to speak, for feeling like, okay, well, I don't, I don't want to think those things either. But then they do what I call the avalanche of questions. And that's where they just lay out. It's not just one thing. And, and to be fair, when someone deconstructs or deconverts, it's always going to be lots of questions. So of course, they're going to say these things. But it's always this whole group of questions that run the gamut of all the apologetics types of issues that people have talked about, written about, discussed, pondered for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. You know, how could a good God allow evil? And why is it that Jesus had to die for our sins? Why couldn't he just forgive us? And the Bible is filled with errors and contradictions. Have you ever noticed in these two parts, it says these two things, and they just give the run on list. And that's not neutral because the implication is, look at all these questions that I had and no one could answer them. 
And usually there's a comment to that effect, like the Christians Mm -hmm. around me could not answer these questions. And for people who are reading this, the onlookers who have never really looked into those things themselves, this is very powerful because they're looking at it and they're saying, wow, those are good questions. Maybe, you know, I've wondered about those questions before and some of these I've never thought about. And that's a really concerning question. There are errors and contradictions in the Bible. And so they see these and they start to think, well, this person's looked into all of it. And they're saying that there are no good answers or people can't answer these questions. And so it's kind of like this person's gone ahead of me in this and this is where they ended up. And it shakes people. And and you see this almost every time somebody comes out with a new deconstruction or deconversion story that people do get shaken by it. This isn't a hypothetical. We've seen this. We've seen it over and over again. And the the final part of these narratives is what I would call the happy ending, where it's not just I, you know, I've had a change in worldview and here's where I am now. It's I am so free. Mm -hmm. I have been freed. Maybe they don't say from this oppressive system, but that's certainly the implication. I have been freed from all these constraints and these rules and from all of this. And I'm happy now. Remember how consistent this is with a secular perspective. Happiness is the ultimate goal. So when someone is telling you they've gone through this process and, hey, it's okay on the other end of this, you can be happy, then that's kind of supposed that it's like it's supposed to speak for itself, really. You know, if you can be happy in doing this, then that must be the right thing or at least a very plausible thing, a plausible choice. So it's it's really crafted to be a, a marketing tool for deconversion in a lot of ways. And when you start to see how they're presented and you start to see this happening with so many people, I think that it's something that we have to talk about more as a church. And I know you've been talking about a lot of Lisa, and I'm glad to see that you're doing that because people have to understand when they read these, what's behind it and how it really is driven by a secular perspective that, you know, happiness is the goal. Here are my feelings. And this is where it's led me. And that, I didn't really address the more. I didn't really address the morality there, but let me, you know, let yeah. you kind of speak to that. Yeah. Well, no, this is fascinating because you mentioned this concept of freedom, and there's something I get what they're talking about. It can feel very freeing to cast off moral restraints. I remember a couple of years before. It's probably around 2006 seven, right toward the end of my run with Zoe Girl. Not that I was becoming progressive, or, but I, I talked about in my book even how there were certain events, though, that definitely made me vulnerable to deconstruction. And one of those was this sense of freedom that I started to feel. It was something I probably couldn't have even articulated. But I had some self-imposed legalism as a young person growing up in the church. My parents weren't all that legalistic, but I was. Like, I'm looking back on it and going, like, I would not listen to secular music. You know, my movies, it was like, if they had more than one S word, it was like not appropriate. And I had all these rules for myself. And so when I started, I started reading more broadly. And I was, I remember being in Ecuador and there's this artist there that I love. I have one of his, um, his books and, and, but he was a socialist. And I remember going to the museum in Quito and just being like, you know, I really get his heart. Like he just cares about the poor and like all of these things. I started to feel this freedom to cast off. Um, I mean, it was right that I cast off some of the legalism, but I did begin to feel this freedom. Like maybe I don't have to think so specifically about God. Maybe I don't have to think so specifically about these certain things. And it can feel very freeing. And I'm so thankful to God for his faithfulness to just walk me through that whole process. But as I've thought about that from this side of it, I think they're really, I get the feeling, but freedom is an interesting beast because you can be free from moral restraints and feel good for a while, right? That can feel really good. But as we learn in the Bible and as I think plays out in our lives, when we cast off those moral restraints, the freedom to sin becomes bondage to sin. So what feels like freedom in the beginning actually ends up enslaving us to the bondage of sin. That's what the Bible talks about. We are, if we have not put saving faith in Jesus, we are slaves to sin. And people don't like to talk that way. They don't want to hear you say 
We, you are a slave to sin if you are not in Christ. And that's where biblical freedom comes in. When I, I was listening to a theologian on this uh, in a soteriology class, and he was saying, you know, when you become a Christian, yeah, there's a sense in which you're free. You're free from sin. But there's no concept of freedom in the Bible being this sort of like, oh, I can just cast it all off and be free and make my own decisions and follow my heart. You're actually bought with a price. You're you're actually become a slave to God. You are a serve a bond servant of Christ. You go from slavery, you're freed from that in but you're bought and now you're under the authority of God and the ruler reign of God, which uh, of course brings freedom in the sense that you're no longer a slave to sin. But I think it's a really misunderstood concept, this whole concept of freedom because think about a child. If you say, "Okay, you can have all the candy you want today." Oh, I'll bet they feel super free until they start barfing from being sick. Sorry, I didn't mean to do a little sermonette there. But it is interesting how rattling all these stories are, these deconversion stories are to Christians. And I wonder if you could, why do you think they are so so rattling when somebody hears a deconversion story? Why do you think that's so um, unsettling for so many Christians? Well, I think that they've already been indoctrinated a bit into secular ideas. And so when we think about the society that's telling us that feelings are the ultimate guide and happiness is the ultimate goal, judging is the ultimate sin, God's the ultimate guest, we've heard these ideas in one way or another so many times that we start to believe them. So when we hear someone reference this kind of thing in their deconversion narratives or deconstruction, then we start to think that there's something to it. We start to, you know, we we like that idea of freedom. We like the authority of the self, like you were just saying. And so when somebody says that they're free, if we've had any of that feeling ourselves of not wanting to be under the authority of God, which everyone has, then that's very compelling to us. And we start to think, well, maybe there's something to that. And just as a, a broader answer to that, I think that overwhelmingly the body of Christ is not very well equipped with an understanding of apologetics and why there's good reason to believe Christianity is true. So if you're not well rooted in that, then you're going to find these stories very compelling. You're not going to be aware that there are great answers to those questions. You're not going to understand that the big question is not whether you feel free or feel happy, but rather what's actually true about reality. Mm -hmm. So if we don't have the right question in our search, when we're talking about, you know, selecting a worldview for our life, which very few people do in a very conscious way, we just kind of piece it together a lot of times. If you're not looking for it with the right questions in mind, you're going to end up in the wrong place. You're looking for what's what everybody else is doing or what costs you the least, what makes you the happiest, what makes you feel good, what seems to make sense to you at any given time. You're going to end up in any number of places. I think we have to refocus the church on understanding the question is what is true about reality? And if what is true about reality is the God of the Bible who has revealed himself through his inspired and authoritative word of God, then there's a lot that follows from that. All the things that you just described that ultimate freedom is found in him and that the world's freedom, if Christianity is true, is really just being enslaved to a lie. And when we get clear on those things, then those deconversion narratives, they don't sound so compelling. We can see them for what they are. We can see them through the lens of a very secular view that has just found its way into every part of society. And we just a little add on to that, we're talking about a little bit more data, but the same researchers have found that when you look at what Americans believe in their worldviews, 88% of people have a worldview that isn't internally consistent. It's not coherent within itself. And so Dr. George Barna, who does a lot of these research studies, he calls it syncretism, that people are by and large just picking and choosing little bits and pieces to put together a worldview that doesn't even logically make sense within itself. And so it, that's not just Christians, that's everyone. It's looking at the philosophical underpinnings of what a person claims to believe and then saying, okay, what are the logical implications that follow from that? And do those all make sense together? And for 88% of people, that's a huge number, 88% of people in this country, it doesn't work together. They hold a worldview that doesn't actually logically fit together. So people don't really care. A lot of people would not even care when they hear that. They're like, well, I'm going to believe what I want to believe. 
So I, I think that's a huge part of it too, is that when you've built your worldview from just picking up pieces over time and it doesn't necessarily fit together in a logical way, you're going to be very tempted to go in directions that maybe don't make sense either. Yeah. And after this, we're going to be recording an episode for your podcast, the Natasha Crane podcast. We've both read this book by uh, John Pavlovitz, uh, If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. And I want to, but I want to ask something that I saw in that book and bring it in here because I think it's really relevant. He talks about these different kinds of Jesuses that, um, and and when he talks about like, oh, one person can read the story of Jesus and see, and and they can take that as justification to own a gun. Someone else can read the same passage and go down a few verses, and that's that for them, that's why they're a pacifist and why they think it's absolutely unbiblical for Christians to own guns. And then his point seems to be. You know, we all do it, so whatever. Just it, it almost seems like, and I noticed this also when I really early in my sort of foray into progressive Christianity, and not that I ever was a progressive Christian, but in the to my deconstruction, I read this book by Brian McLaren where he talks about the seven Jesuses, and essentially he says we need to look at all the different streams of Christianity, from Eastern Orthodox to Catholicism, Charismatic, Southern Baptist, Presbyterian, and we need to look at the way they see Jesus and get a more rounded picture of who Jesus actually is. And I remember just even back then, as vulnerable as I was to these ideas, thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. I just want to know which one is actually correct. <laughs> you know, like, which one does the Bible teach? Because I think there's this sort of instinct in culture to say, well, it's just your interpretation, and this is just my interpretation. We're not going to tell each other we're wrong. But I think an important point to make is that there actually is a correct interpretation. And I may not always have it, I may not always hold it, but the goal should be to get to it, right? As Christians, we do we are going to disagree. Natasha, you and I probably disagree on some some minor issues. But our goal, both of us, is like, okay, well let's try to get to what the author's intent was. What is scripture actually trying to communicate about Jesus? But it seems like there's this reframing of Jesus. You know, if you abandon that, then there's this reframing of Jesus to fit certain narratives. And so in your book, you talk about non-evangelizing Jesus, theology light Jesus, anti-organized religion Jesus, red letter Jesus. And it just really struck me, like, this is exactly what the progressives have been talking about for so many years. And you're sort of putting your finger on, this is going into wider culture now. And I mean, we can't talk about all of them, but talk about one of those Jesus that we see so predominantly in culture and how that's really a reframing of how Jesus is presented in the Gospels. Yeah, so th I think theology like Jesus is a good one to talk about because it, we're going to talk a lot about that, I think, in our other episode that we're doing that you were talking about here. But theology like Jesus is the one I think is the favorite of secular culture because most people don't say explicitly like, oh yeah, I hate this Jesus guy in history. You know, people at least attempt to have some kind of basic reverence that he was, you know, a good moral teacher, right? It's like, you know, Jesus was very loving and he he didn't like the organized religion of the day, supposedly, which is a whole other conversation. And, you know, he fought the, the people in power. So you, you hear about all of these things that Jesus did in terms of dealing with the people around him and the love that he had for, for people. But what you don't hear is about the wider theology of what Jesus believed and what he claimed about who he was. This is this is missing from so much. And especially when you read progressives, you, you see that there's just this emphasis on, yeah, we really need to understand all the different parts of Jesus, like you're saying, but they completely always leave out the part about Jesus claiming to be God and what it means to claim to be the Messiah and what that meant with the whole Old Testament behind it and what Jesus taught about eternity. You, you don't in salvation, you don't see them looking at those parts of it. And even though they're saying we all need to really look and understand the different parts, they're always leaving out those parts. And if you're the one who comes and says, but this is what Jesus says, well, that's not giving that's not given any airtime <laughs> that it's so it's kind of only a one way look. It's we want we need to make sure we're looking at these parts that I want to look at. Right. I don't want to actually consider all these parts about judgment and what that would mean, for example, and what mm -hmm. Jesus said about hell. We just as a culture, we just pick and choose those things. And so I call theology like Jesus, this Jesus who didn't really care about 
who God is or about the nature of God and those kinds of things. It's all about how we should treat one another, that we should be nice. It's just, you know, it's just like the book title that we're going to talk about. If God is love, don't be a jerk. That's just one attribute of God, right? God is much more than love. He's not less than love. He is love, but he's much more than love also. So we are really reduced him into a box when we say he's only this one thing. Um, so yeah, I, I think theology like Jesus is the one that I see more than any other Jesus, uh, because a lot of progressives and other people claim that Jesus didn't have much of a theology at all. It was just really loving others. But the irony of that, of course, is that that's a theology too. So even right. if you're claiming, even if you're claiming that Jesus only cares about how we treat one another, well, that's a theology too. It's not a question of was Jesus theological or not. It's a question of what was his theology and why should we care? If he was just another human being with some interesting ideas, uh, that's just another opinion. But if he was God himself, as he claimed to be in so many different ways, then we need to listen to him because he is authoritative for our lives. And that's the huge difference between a progressive view, I think, and an evangelical view. Well, in a moment, we're going to go to our Patreon-only after-party hangout time, five to ten minutes with some extra questions that you get to ask if you are a Patreon supporter at tier, I believe it's four or above. If you want to go to Elise—sorry, uh, I did that last time—go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers and select tier three to get the bonus content, tier four for an exclusive Facebook group, and we do monthly Zoom calls, and those have been just such a sweet time of hanging out, praying for each other, talking about things. So again, go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers if you want to know more about that. And Natasha, as we close out this portion of our discussion, I want to ask you a very specific question about, man, tying this all together. We've, we've really pointed out a lot of things that are going on. We've pointed out definitions of how those things are changing, the biblical ideas people are abandoning, how we're seeing that come into the church. I wonder if you could leave us with some words on biblical discernment. What does it mean as a Christian to exercise discernment in these times? Uh, because I think that's probably the takeaway question everybody's wondering. I'm sure a lot of, especially my regular viewers and listeners, are, are hearing this and saying, I, I agree with you on all of this, but what do I do with it? How do I engage in culture with biblical discernment? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it, it's so important because it's one thing to understand what's going on. And that's so important. But then what do you do with that? And it, it goes back to something as a starting point that sounds just so simple and obvious that sometimes I feel funny saying it out loud, but getting into the Bible and reading God's word and understanding what the Bible says, that's got to come first. And if the research showed that Christians by and large were regularly in the word and studying the Bible on a consistent basis, I wouldn't even have to bring this up, but that's not what the data shows. The data shows that Christians overwhelmingly do not read their Bible on a regular basis. And so so it's so important to remember that if we're going to have a biblical worldview, that we seek to live according to the truths as taught by God himself, we have to know what they are. We have to be reading the Bible if we're going to have a biblical worldview. So it starts right there. Beyond actually reading the Bible, we do have to understand the culture around us. Sometimes I get pushed back on social media when I post things about this because people say, I don't need a book. I don't need anything else. I just need to read my Bible. And yes, mm -hmm. I completely agree that you have to read your Bible as a starting point, and that's where you get truth from. But sometimes it's difficult for us to translate that into all of the issues that we're seeing today. Sometimes it's hard to go from, well, what the Bible says to what do I make of things like a critical theory that I see in culture? Or what do I make of things like the new movements that we see in terms of sexuality and, and gender identity and the things that we see out there? Sometimes it is not necessarily obvious to us how to make those connections. So we have to understand the culture at a deeper level, the specific culture we're in. We see that Paul, for example, in Acts, he very much understood the culture that he was in on Mars Hill when he goes and he talks 
talks to the people there. He understood them and he was able to build bridges and connect with them and speak to what they believed currently so that he could make an, uh, the, the bridge to understanding Christianity. And in the same way today, we want to understand the culture around us because when we do, when we understand what these secular ideas are, when we understand where that comes from in terms of the authority of the self and the feelings and the happiness and the judging and, and all of those components, then we start to see why that is so antithetical to a biblical worldview. And once we start to have that understanding, it's a lot easier to resist those ideas and to keep the clear lines drawn. So we have to understand the biblical worldview. We have to understand the culture that surrounds us. And I, I think the final thing that I would say on that is that it's not just about how we live our lives. And I think that a lot of Christians kind of throw their hands up at some point and say, there's just so much out there. I'm just going to keep loving on people. I'm just going to keep, you know, being as faithful as I can be. But there are multiple pieces that are really involved with us. And I break the book down into these three sections that reflect that, that it's about faithfully different believing we have to start with believing what the Bible says and understanding it, like I was just saying. Faithfully different thinking. How does our beliefs translate into the way we think about things? And then how does our thinking translate into faithfully different living? It's those three parts all together that come together for a biblical worldview. It's not just about saying we're going to love each other according to whatever definition we might think that is. It's really getting back to here's what the Bible says and here's how this needs to transform my thoughts. Here's how it needs to transform transform my living. And when we have that, then we can be, going back to your original question, then we can be better discerning to understand the difference between what's right and wrong in culture and really how we can be salt and light today. Well, I want to thank my guest, Natasha Crane. I think you can all see why I so heartily endorsed her book, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Pick that up. Go and subscribe to the Natasha Crane podcast. Great insights to help you live faithfully different in this culture. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe. Click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms, always helps if you leave a great review. If you saw this post on social media, click like and share. Whatever you can do to help us get this into the news feeds of more people is so helpful to us. So thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next time. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.